This episode of The Taylor Stevens Show is brought to you by listeners, readers, and patrons. If you'd like to learn how to support this podcast, please visit www.patreon.com slash taylorstevens. Hi, this is Taylor Stevens the New York Times bestselling and award-winning author of Kick-Ass International Thrillers. And this is The Taylor Stevens Show with my good friend Steve Campbell, where we are kicking writing in the butt one word at a time. And for those of you who listened to last week's episode where we were talking about first sentence sentences of books and then, the, you know, the first paragraph, Taylor compared and contrasted first sentences to first paragraph or a couple of paragraphs, I had a couple of follow-up questions. But because we had run so long, I didn't want to ask them. And we're going to use them to start into the chit-chat for this week. So if you didn't listen last week, quickly go back and download last week's episode and listen to it and then jump back here. So my question, Taylor, my first question is this. How important is it to have a clever first line? And I ask that question because I know so many authors really spend an inordinate amount of time trying to be clever with the first line. And when it works, it it seems like it's brilliant, but I don't know whether it's worth the time or not. What what are your thoughts? I think it would depend on each individual author's own ability to be clever. I do not find myself to be particularly clever. (laughs) I will not waste all that time trying to artificially come up, like force it. If if something comes to mind, then sure. But for me, cleverness has nothing to do with it. It's all about finding a way to most clearly articulate that in the middle of the plot concept. Like we are starting in the middle of the plot. Where do we go? Like, how does that start? And I'm looking for the best lead in that will lead us into the scene that's about to hit us. And so I, I think if I was trying to be clever, it would feel forced (laughs) and, and it would be very obvious and it would not work. But for those who are more clever, it might be a good thing. But I think that sometimes it's possible to be too clever for your own good, where unless somebody is on your exact same wavelength, they're just kind of kind of like roll their eyes at it. So that's the danger of it, if if you don't know how to pull it off. Well. All right. Now, with that being said, I think the opening line of The Informationist, the prologue of The Informationist, is a clever line. And huh. so that line, for, for those who don't remember from last week, it's this is where he would die. It's short. It, it captures your imagination. And it's clever. It's it's yeah, for me, it qualifies as a clever opening line. And I always when I read something like that, that I think is clever, I always stop and read it two or three times. And I just think, oh, that's really good. And it, it has nothing to do with whether the rest of the book will be good or not. But I, I always admire lines like that. So I can just say from since I was the one who wrote it, I know the mindset of the author at the time. And it really wasn't about trying to be clever so much as trying to articulate what was going on inside that character's head. And that character is terrified and really believes that this is where he's going to die. And that's where it starts. The story starts with him going, 
this is where he's going to die. This is this is how life ends. And so I think that by tapping, and I think that's really what I try to do with every single story when I open it, is I'm trying to tap into what is going on inside that character's head in this exact snapshot moment in time. So like the one for the fulcrum, which is the story I'm currently working on right now, the story opens different lies carried different weights and that made some lies easier to forgive than others. Some might say, oh, you know, you're like pontificating or whatever, but I'm not. That's inside the character's head and she is analyzing the words coming out of this character's mouth. And weighing those lies against a life of lies. Where does this lie weigh in the the continuum of lies? This lie is unforgivable because. So I think if you're trying to be clever but don't know how, (laughs) get as deep as you can into the character's head and that'll give you your opening line. Or if you're trying to be clever but don't know how, just skip it and move on. Yeah, that too. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And I thought that the opening line, which has been, which has changed a bit in the fulcrum over time, but I I really like it, and I've always liked it. It hasn't changed much, but it's always one of those things tweaking, tweaking, and it it makes you think. It's like, okay, what was that? (laughs) And you have to read it again to understand what's being said which is another one of those things that, that I guess that make the line clever. Okay, here, here this was my this was my next question. And I think I know what your answer will be based on what you've already described for some of your openings. How important is it to get the opening right before you continue on with the story? As a writer, at, when you're writing. Ah, uh, it's going to depend on what draft you're on, I think. Because Let's say it's the first draft. Then it doesn't. I mean, I think if, if you're working on your first draft, then the exact wording of that opening line is far less important than making sure you're starting the story in the right place and that the scene that you're going for is the right scene for the story, for where the story should open. Because polishing and getting the words right, that it you're it could change your scenes could change like until you have that first the whole story down until you have that first draft you don't really know sometimes you think a story is supposed to start in one spot you get through the entire story and you realize no that was not the right place to start it so if you spend all that time investing in getting the words correct for this scene well if it turns out that that's not where your story starts what you just wasted all that time and mental energy and on top of that it can make you feel attached to it like well i got this so perfect this has to be where the story opens which might not actually be the best for the story so i would say that focusing on the scenes themselves and how that plays into the story is more important than focusing on getting that the wording or the opening line or the opening paragraphs correct until you have that full first draft done and you know your story. And then you can go back and start being clever. <laughs> Sorry. All right. Being clean. Yes. All right. So that was some very writerly um, chit chat for today. So now we can actually move on with today's episode, which is going to begin with some reader feedback. 
Yeah. So listener this is feedback. Really fun. What am I saying? Listener it's feedback. A, I get it all mixed up. I do that all the time. So these were some comments that were sent to me by Carl, longtime listener. Um, we've he's sent some lovely questions and comments in the past before. So excited. Thank you, Carl, again. Um, and this is just two of them. I'm just gonna do two today. And so the first one was in regard to our conversation about weather. We you might remember that episode we were talking about how weather can be a whole character in itself you know, do you use weather, et cetera, et cetera. Huge conversation about that. You can go back and listen to it. I'm not going to repeat it. But what Carl says here is this. Personally, I've gotten pretty annoyed at the all too common trope of external weather matching the story plot, typically by having a big storm at the climax of the book. Doesn't matter how much it's been set up. For example, a hurricane in Florida or a snowstorm in Maine are common enough in real life. But when it fits into the story perfectly, it still feels fake to me. It's completely ridiculous when the weather is a rare event, rain in Los Angeles, which happens at the end of so many movies, to which I have to say, oh my God, yes, thank you. Like when I was talking about using weather as an element of texture or adding to the story from that, I was not talking about this. This is a huge pet peeve of mine also, where, and, and it happens in so many movies, the thunderstorm rolls in right as there's a big, you know, scene climax, or, you know, it's just so convenient that it started raining right as this was happening. I even take it a step further in my annoyances that I noticed that pretty much any scene that's ever shot in Gotham is at night. Gotham does not ever experience daytime. <laughs> that, that annoys me to no end. And like, that's yeah, why I sure. can't watch Batman anymore. It's just <laughs> too stinking dark. <laughs> uh, so, but but when the weather just, you know, the whole thing is, the story is all structured around this coming storm. Like they'll, they'll telegraph it. You know, it's coming or, you know, weather reports will be shown or whatever, you know, a hurricane is coming. And then it happens to hit right at the same time. The only exception to that that I have found so far is when the plot revolves around that specifically because of it. So like, let's say that there's a heist being planned and it's been in the works for quite a few years, but they know that they're going to need cover of a storm to be able to pull it off. And so they've been waiting and waiting and waiting, and they finally have the storm that they've been waiting for, and it's predicted to, to roll right over. Then in that instance, I can work with that because it wasn't something that just happened to coincide with the plot. The plot was built specifically for that event, and this is the moment they've been waiting for. They can finally do it. That I'm okay with, but pretty much any other one is just so, I'm so over it. I'm annoyed by it. And there was this one movie and I cannot remember what it was. I think it might've been one of the Mission Impossibles that there's this big, huge storm and all this conflict happening. Like, you know, oh my God, are they going to make it? And once they're safely on the ground, then it's like the storm passes. And I'm like, really, really, that is so convenient. <laughs> So I, I absolutely hear what Carl is saying. I, 
100% agree with this. Then you've got stories like, you know, I think it's the day after tomorrow where like the whole world freezes over. That is different because the story is taking place after the weather event. I can work with that too. That's the second instance, the second example of weather type stuff that when it coincides with the plot. The weather that I was talking about in when I was talking about including weather in your stories was not big weather events. It's just this is the time of year it is. And you make sure that you utilize the sensory details that will go along with it. For example, in the in the story that I'm writing right now, there's a scene that takes place in Odessa, and it is the is the beginning of winter. And it would be ridiculous if a character gets searched on top of a coat. Like, how are you supposed to feel if there's why if you're feeling their body on top of a coat? So to ignore that and to just have them the you know, and they patted her down or whatever without removing the coat makes a joke of the the reality. And so when I talk about including weather in, those are the types of small details that give the story texture that feels real because you're not just skipping over it. And I find that when you do tend to skip over those things, it's because you're not really fully thinking through the, you're not seeing the scene. You're not seeing how it plays out inside your head. You're just writing stuff. So that that's the difference between one weather and the other. So the next topic that Carl brought up is about visiting an area in person for research, which is another thing that we discussed recently. And he quotes another author to bring up this point. He says, Ursula Le Guin, I don't know if I'm saying her name properly. I've never heard it pronounced, so I'm sorry. Um, is it Le Guin? Le, Le Guin? Ursula Le Guin, she writes science fiction, I think. She made an interesting point about this. When you read descriptions, look at photos, whatever, you are inevitably seeing the area through the filter of the person who wrote the description, took the photo, et cetera. That's fine. But when you go there in person, it is not unlikely that things will jump out at you, which were not the focus of what other people chose to show you. And again, I absolutely agree with this. If I could visit every single location that I was writing about, I would do it. And it's one of the reasons why I tend to prefer to write about places that I have been specifically for this reason. When I'm doing research for a place that I have never been, I I know that I'm seeing the eyes through someone else. And I try very hard not to rely entirely on that particular set of observations. And I do make an effort to read beyond that to get multiple viewpoints of it. But even still, that is not the same as visiting a place in person. But I can't I can't always do that. And I know most authors can't always do that. But I do think that if you can visit a place in person, you're always going to have more to add to the story. Small things, quirky things, observations, because the way you yourself view the world will be influenced it's it's a, it's a meshing between the location and your how you view the world. So you're going to have unique insights on it. Sometimes you can develop unique insights based on what someone else has said when you draw off your own experience from something that is similar but not the same. But you are always going to have much richer 
storytelling ability or technique or well to draw from when you have visited a place in person yourself. But if you're writing about a place that it's just in passing, like it's not, you're not really writing about the place. It's just a, a way station along the way. You can get away with it a little more easy than if you are setting the whole story in a location that you have, or huge chunks of scenes in a location that you've never been. So I'm really grateful for both of those observations because they are points that I failed to mention when we were talking about the discussion and I feel they really add to the conversation. So thank you for that, Carl, super appreciated. And um, anybody else has more, send them in because this is a conversation. It's not just me here. So with that um, said, today, the, the rest of the things that I wanna talk about are there's some things that I have seen other writers say that I've really connected to about the process or about just to do with writing. And so I'm going to quote some other authors and expand on that a little bit because sometimes other people say things better than I do. Lots of times. So anyway, this first, and this is not in any topical order, it's just random. But the first quote is from Diablo Cody. I have no idea who he is, what he writes, but I know that this is an amazing quote. It says, I don't have a formal rewrite process. I just compulsively groom and regroom scenes like a cat with OCD. And I'm like, that is me. <laughs> like I do have my drafts, you know, first draft, second draft, third draft, but it is not a strict forward process. I'm constantly going back and, and grooming and regrooming scenes like a cat with OCD. I just love that. I love that description so well, so much. Um, I had to share it. This next one isn't actually on writing or storytelling at all. It has nothing to do with writing or storytelling. So I follow a few think tanky type accounts for completely different reasons than writing. And the they are sort of geopolitical in nature. And the reason that I follow them is to try, well, first reason is to try on a personal level to understand what's going on in the world. Like not your surface level news of this happened and that happened and so-and-so said what, but to really crawl into the cultural mindset of those who are running the show in different countries. So for example, to really try and understand China, like it's a completely different mentality, completely different governing philosophy based on concepts that are often completely foreign, no pun intended, to those in the West. I want to understand the way they think. I want to understand the calculus that goes into decision-making. That's on a personal level. You know, all the big countries, you know, China, Russia, the United States, you know, Brazil, whatever. I want to understand. But the second is because this is a type of thinking that's completely foreign to me. This really high level strategic decision making. It's, it's foreign to me, but it is not foreign to my characters. And so I follow these types of accounts to try and better understand the logic ladders behind the decisions that my fictional characters would be making. And essentially, on this level, we're talking about the study of war. 
which is something that I, why would I know? I'm not, I've never been in the military. Uh, that it, it does, has nothing to do with my day-to-day life. Why would I want to understand war and the war as a process, war as a um, strategy, as how is this done, as the um, the infrastructure behind it, the the wheels that keep everything moving. I want to understand this. And so that's where this quote originated from. And the reason that I'm sharing it today is because it actually works on a completely separate level. Everything about it can be applied to storytelling as well, if you change a few words. So here's the original as it relates to war. Williamson Murray and Alan Millett have written that it is more important to make correct decisions at the political and strategic level than it is at the operational or tactical level. Mistakes in operations and tactics can be corrected, but strategic mistakes live forever. Great. You need that? Love that? Crawl me into Jack and Jill's head. Crawl me into Claire's head. Crawl me into Monroe's head. That there is a gateway. However, if we change a few words, it becomes about story craft versus word craft. And here's how that would read if we changed it. It is more important to make correct decisions at the story and character level than it is at the word choice level. Mistakes in word choices can be corrected, but story and character mistakes live forever. (laughs) I like that. Do Do with that as you will. Okay. This one is about structure. So it's a it's a pantsing versus outlining thing. And I have to preface this and say, I know that for some authors, outlining is just never, ever, ever, ever going to be a thing. And that's okay. I personally have found outlining to be more productive for me for the types of stories that I write. And with outlining comes a sort of structure. And that's what this quote is about. A story structure does not constrain creativity. This is by Scott Myers, by the way. Story structure does not constrain creativity. Rather, it shapes the chaos of our impulses and ideas into something coherent. Within that structure, we have the freedom to follow our characters and see where they take us. And that, I think, is a different way of articulating where I... I talk about how an outline is sort of like a dot to dot that gives you these broad brushstrokes. I think I've never really been one for following story structure in terms of act one, act two, act three. That is more formal than I'm willing to go right now, simply because I don't understand it in a, oh, I get it, that works for me sort of way. But that doesn't mean I won't ever. To me, when I talk about story structure, I'm thinking of an outline that and where he says that it shapes the chaos of our impulses and ideas into something coherent, that is what an outline does for me. Because if you've ever found yourself in a situation where you're writing and then you have an idea and then it sort of spins off into something else, and next thing you know, your story's going off in a direction that you hadn't intended it to go. And we've had discussions about that on prior episodes of how to deal with that, how to focus it in. But this is 
another way of looking at that, that when you write that outline, what you're doing is you're forcing those ideas and, and giving them constraints where it can't just go off on a tangent because it doesn't fit the story that you're trying to write. And it gives you sort of a very loose uh, lines that you need to draw within. But what happens within those lines is still completely open to creativity and such. So if you have only written as a pantser, but are open to the idea of outlining that you just don't really know how or if it's going to work for you, you can see it as it's not all one or all the other. What you're doing is you're building a framework you know, creating an outline, literally not just like outline is in story outline, but outline is in drawing. And what you're trying to do is set those boundaries of here's where the story is. Don't color outside those lines, but whatever's inside that you're free to pants it as much as you want to. So just consider that. So this next quote is from Damien Chazelle, I think. Everything is more perfect in your head. Once you make concrete choices, one word over the other, everything gets worse. And I I laughed when I read that because it's so true. Like you can see the story in your head and it all makes sense. But as soon as you try and articulate it, everything just goes to crap. And that's just part of the process. And I'm like, ah, it's so nice to see somebody else say it too. Like this is because I experience it. And it's very frustrating. And I'm sure it's frustrating for every, anyone who's ever tried to tell a story of like, the better you try and make it, the worse it gets. And then eventually you chip away at it and it, you know, sort of gets good again. But anyway, this is from GM Trevor. I don't know how to pronounce his name. I've heard it pronounced, but I can't remember. Trevelyan, I think. What is easy to read has been difficult to write. The easily flowing connection of sentence with sentence and paragraph with paragraph has always been won by the seat of the brow. Sweat of the brow, sorry, <laughs> typo. Um, and I think that that is something that, how do I put this? A lot of authors maybe give up before they get that far into it, where they, where they, they do the, they stop before they have gotten to where those ideas flow from and the connections flow from sentence to sentence and paragraph to paragraph and that's that's a, a personal choice like you don't really get anything from it like it just makes you write slower and of course not even every reader will be able to appreciate what it is that you've done so you don't do it for others and you don't do it for you know, because it benefits you in terms of more money or better sales or anything like that. You do it because you're driven to do it. That's the only reason to do it. Um, but I don't think it's possible for a reader to really truly grasp how much work and mental energy goes into the difference between something that's okay written and something that just flows and where every word counts and means something. It's not, it doesn't come out that way. It is won by the sweat of the brow. It is hard work. And I think that in today's book selling environment, book stories like that are going to become more and more rare. They're going to only be written by those who can afford the luxury of time because books have become so commodified that the amount of money that authors earn per copy 
is just going lower and lower. And the a number of copies that authors sell is also becoming smaller per author that, you know, unless they have another source of income or they're being subsidized by a spouse or a second job or whatnot, they simply do not have the luxury of time that is required to get words to read that way. So if you are a lover of words, make sure you support the authors who write well, because not very many readers do in, in, as a ratio of how many books are sold. Most people just want the volume, they want the content, and they don't want to pay full price for it. So if you care about words in that way, support those authors, funnel your, your dollars towards the authors who are giving you the words that you find worthwhile. There we go on that. Okay. So this next quote is by Jennifer Ian, and it says, most people who write seriously tend to be pretty solitary people, but that does not mean that I can work in isolation and know if what I'm doing is good. I need a community to help me understand what's working and what isn't. And this is so true to me as well. I write in solitude. Uh, I spend a lot of time alone, but I learn so much from reader feedback of what's working and what isn't because it's, it's really hard. You get so close to the forest, you can't see the trees. And even though I will put out something that I think is the best that it can be, there might not be anything wrong with it, but I might not really understand it until I start getting reader feedback. So I have learned so much about Monroe as a character from readers who've interacted with me about her. And from even reviews of strangers I've never met who explain her to other readers. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that's true. I never thought of it that way. Uh, and it's how I learned. It's how I learned that writing doesn't matter. It's the story that matters because the stories that are that are the that I've invested so much time and energy in writing really well. If the story isn't isn't as much as what people were expecting the writing doesn't matter. And it clicked in my head from reader feedback. Okay. It's the stories and the characters. Don't even worry about the writing. When they say that they're, you know, they didn't click with the writing. They're not talking about the writing. They're talking about the way the story is told. And I would not have ever learned that if it hadn't been for the feedback of the reading community that's helped me understand what's working and what isn't. This next quote is from Scott Myers again. And he says, switch protagonists, a great exercise for developing your story because each character is their own protagonist. And I, I love what Scott Myers says because his way of explaining storytelling and writing is so similar to the way that I view it, except he does it for screenwriting and I do it for novels. And I'm not trying to elevate myself to his level. I'm just saying that I really click with what he says and I love his quotes. So this, this idea of switching protagonists being a way to develop the characters in your story, I use this. And I, I use, use it especially when I'm writing dialogue between a point of view character and a non-point of view character. So for me, those scenes are the ones that most easily tend to get wooden. So like, I know what my character is going to say and do, and I know what the plot requires, and I know where the scene is going. And that's the danger, 
is that then the other character starts to become a bit wooden and their questions and their interactions, they start to feel more like setups so that the point of view character can say or do whatever they need to as, as the plot requires. And so when I run into that situation where the scene is feeling like it's just not quite right, the dialogue, even if it's punchy, it's empty. It's, it's not, it's not as consistent and it, it, just is not working as well as it should, I'll switch point of views, not necessarily on the page, but like in my head. And in my head, I'll make the other character the dominant character. And by putting myself in their mind instead, what that does is it gives me the building blocks for much richer dialogue, better character interaction, because I'm now seeing the whole scene from their point of view. And, and so it allows me helps me to build richer characters for the non-point of view characters because so much of character comes about through dialogue through body language and whatnot I can't be inside their head so how they express themselves is really one of the only tools that I have to keep them feeling real and by putting myself in their head it strengthens those questions or conflicts or confrontations or whatever's going on in that scene because now it's coming from their own needs, their own wants. And if I ever get, if it ever gets really tricky or really hard, I will open up a separate document and try and just rough out the scene from that other character's point of view. Like, here's what they're feeling. Here's why they're angry. Here's why they don't want to give this person the information. And then that gives me the, the building blocks for the dialogue and it creates a much richer scene. The conflict is deeper. The emotional connections are deeper. The frustrations are deeper. And it, it, it's a really good technique and it works and I highly recommend it. I've got two more quotes and then we're finished. Uh, this next one is from Sam Sykes. Characters are story and how two people feel about each other is plot, even if they don't have a sword fight. And I thought that was very clever because sometimes it can be difficult to separate characters and plot. Like it's a constant, I think, tension as you're writing where we've talked about it multiple times where we know it's the plot driving the story, but to the reader, it has to feel like it's the character driving the story. And to just remind, just put it so succinctly, the characters are the story. And how those two people, how two people, three people, whatever, feel about each other is plot. That's where the plot comes from, even if they don't have a sword fight. That's where conflict comes from, is how those other people, how people feel about each other. And so I think it's a really good um, guide guidepost to, if you're, if you're struggling for why is this scene not working, what's going on is it's not the plot, it's the characters. The characters are the story. How they feel about each other is the plot, and it, it helps to clarify it and keep you from forcing things so that it's just the plot pushing everything along. And this last quote is from Mike Sweeney, and it says, many writers confuse complex plotting with good storytelling. Drama lies in what we feel, not in incidents and mechanics. This is one that I, I don't want to say I struggle with it. But it is something that I have to be mindful of because I write very complex plots. And I don't 
mistake those complex plots for good storytelling. I am aware that it's not the same thing, but because of the genre that I write in, complexity is almost an expectation. And being able to separate the complexity from the characters is critical in being able to tell the story in a way that it still connects and has that emotion. And so remembering that the drama, that's what pulls the reader, the reader audience in, that's in what is felt. And feeling does not come from incidents or mechanics. It comes from character. So if you have the most complex plot in the world, as interesting as it may be, it's not the plot itself that draws us in. It's the characters and how those characters react or interact with the incidents and mechanics that makes for good storytelling. Character is story. Story is character. Character is story. And if we can just remember that and hold on to that, and that is your, your mantra, your guiding light, it solves so many story writing problems, especially when you start getting into really complex plots. And for me, Liar's Legacy is the most complex story I've ever written. Hopefully it never gets more complex than that. And that story is completely character driven because that was the only way to tell a complex story like that and not lose the plot, so to speak, that, that pun intended on that one. So character is story. Story is character. Plot is what happens when we understand how characters feel about each other and what they do about it. And that's everything that I have for today. <laughs> so that is our show for today. Thank you guys very much for listening. We will be back with you again next week. Yes, we will. And please send in your questions and your feedback and everything else because it always makes the shows better and we love Week.